You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Psalm 23, let's just jump straight in and we'll read the first two verses. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. So this starts off very similar to Psalm 121. Do you remember that great psalm, the verse that everyone knows, I will lift my eyes to the mountains, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. This is a similar uh, way that this psalm begins. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And we can learn something about the pilgrim here immediately. The posture of the believer, of the posture of someone who is on their way to Zion up to the dwelling place of God, is that they are always looking up. This is what you see over and over again in the Bible. Your eyes are up, and that is symbolic of looking to the heavens in the sense of the one who dwells there, the one who is high above all things. Notice, we don't look to the side. God is not our peer. He's not a friend. He's not someone we address uh, sloppily. This is the Lord who is seated high above all principalities, all powers, the Lord, the creator of everything. He is enthroned in heaven. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet tells us, in chapter 40, verse 26, he uses a similar expression. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. And he's giving us the same that we can do today. Often we look at the heavens, don't we? And we get that sense of awe, that sense of wonder. When we know that the one that we worship, the one that we have relationship for, the one who came to die for us, is the same God with the power that spoke those things into existence. He's the one who upholds them with his hand every single day. He is the Lord on high. This is the posture of the pilgrim. You're looking up. You are looking to the heavens. We look up for our direction. We look up for our commands. We look up for refuge. We look up for help. We look up for anything and everything. The Lord is the source of this. The heart of the pilgrim should be confidently expecting and waiting for the master. John 17 verse 1. We see our Lord when he was on the earth too. He had the same attitude. In the great priestly prayer in John 17, it says, Jesus spoke these things, and then it says, lifting his eyes to the heavens. This is the attitude that our Lord had. This is the attitude that the pilgrims had. You'll find this little phrase over and over again. And the idea of it is that the one you are looking to is in authority. And authority is often a raised position. That's why looking up, we see this. And on the other side of that, symbolically looking down, goes takes you into the other direction if you want to see god the way that he really is the way that he has actually revealed himself to be not the million and other ways that people are trying to explain him on this earth but how he actually reveals himself to be we have to look to how to him we have to look up to him and where do we see him most clearly revealed yes jesus christ but we also see it in his word don't we this is where it tells us to look for his word this is why if you go into old churches Uh, mainly in the UK particularly, and Europe, you'll see they often had uh, stairs leading up to a high pulpit, and they'd probably have a pulpit on the corner like there. Now, many people think that was because, from a Catholic influence, they were elevating their priesthood. That was not the point in the Reformation churches. The point was 
The, the person doing the study of the scriptures was simply explaining the truth of the word of God. The reason why the pulpits were always elevated is because they wanted every single person to be looking up to the word of God. It was a, 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 like a physical reminder that you are sitting under the authority of God's word at this time. So there was a very specific point uh, when you do that, and I liked that. Now, it says, enthroned in the heavens. You who are enthroned in the heavens. Now, this is a phrase that really speaks of God's sovereignty. It depicts a God who is ultimately in control. Let me read to you from the prophet Isaiah again. 37 verse 16, the prophet Isaiah says, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim? You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. I love the book of Isaiah. You'll find so many of these statements that just extol the glory and the majesty of God above all things, above all kingdoms. Every man on this earth, every rich man, every politician, every ruler, they are nothing compared to the Lord. So we have in Psalm 123 a beautiful introduction again to the word of God. Remember in Psalm 121, notice the progression of this pilgrim on his way up to the house of the Lord. It says, it said, we lift our eyes to the hills, didn't it? You remember, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Then in Psalm 122, he was actually in the house of God. He delighted to be in the house of the Lord. And then in Psalm 123, he's no longer looking to the mountains. Now he's looking above the mountains and he's looking straight to the heavens, to the Lord. And this is the pilgrim. As you can almost sense his heart getting more and more overwhelmed with the presence of God, more and more joyful as he gets closer to God. And remember, they were doing this as part of a pilgrim festival. Soon they would all be there together, watching the sacrifices, singing and praising together. This was a joyful time. Verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of, serv of servants look to the hand of their masters, the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. The imagery here is a little hard. To, to, let me try and give you a, an analogy that helps you with this. If you imagine, if, you, if any of you, if you've ever eaten in a really posh restaurant, anyone? Like, so posh that it makes you a bit awkward because there's, there's like a team of waiters standing just behind the table and they're, they're all standing to attention. They don't talk. They are just absolutely paying attention. And when your glass drops just like a single bit below half, before you even turn your back, he's there and he's filled it up and he's off again. That, that's the sort of attitude that is being talked about here. It's a focus and devotion on what is on for them, on the master or the, for the waiter, on the people eating. But it's talking about the pilgrim should have that sort of expectation and watching on God. This looking up to the heavens that he is talking about to focus on the one should be with that sort of passion, expectancy and eagerness to serve. That is what it is to be a Christian in this respect. That is how we do it. He says, be gracious to us, O Lord, verse 3. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud, verses 3 and 4, that was. Now he pleads for the Lord to be gracious. And it's an interesting phrase. He says, we are greatly filled with contempt. And this is, the word translates, filled to abundance, now, on the one hand, this is a pilgrim on his way to the Lord. He's focusing on the Lord. So why would he say he is filled with contempt? And the idea is that he is living in a fallen, broken world, and his spirit is just being vexed by what is happening around him. The contempt and scorn that is put on him that he sees in the world has filled him up so much. He's had enough, basically, if we could put it in our language. He's fed up. He's had enough. He's done. He wants to draw a line under it. He's tired. We all get like this at times. Sometimes what is going on in the world can be extremely exhausting. Uh, we all know that feeling. And this is why 
the psalmist pleads twice, be gracious to me, God, be gracious to me. In those times when the world presses in on you, you need the grace of God. And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about salvation by grace here. I'm talking about you personally in your walk as a believer already. You need to learn to rest in the grace of God. He says, our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at need, at ease rather. And the word scoffing here, it's derision, dislike, ridicule. These are the same people that are pouring contempt on him. Reminds me very much of a lot of what we see in the world today. Back, well, probably going back to sort of eight, nine years ago now, when the, the Reason Rallies, anyone heard of the Reason Rallies? They, they were the big thing and, and all the atheism was very popular at that time. There was a very famous Reason Rally where they had uh, Richard Dawkins was the keynote speaker and everything like that. And they played a, a song that one of these uh, funny guys had written about Jesus' second coming and it was obviously all filled with sexual innuendos. They had an inflatable Jesus that was being pushed around the, the stage like a beach ball paraded around and then Dawkins got up to the pulpit and he gave a very famous speech where he said these words quote mock them ridicule them in public don't fool for the convention that we're all too polite to talk about religion mock them ridicule them in public this is exactly what the pilgrim is experiencing here when he says I'm filled with contempt by those who have derision those who are derisive against me again in these situations you need divine grace because you don't want to absorb, you don't want to return evil for evil, you don't want these things to actually break down your skin and make you depressed and all these things that they can do. It's hard to hear these things. You need the grace of God. He is your refuge. You flee to him, you run to him, he will establish you in grace and he will move you forward. It is divine grace that we need in these situations and that is why the pilgrim here says, be gracious to me, and he says it again, oh Lord, be gracious to me. He's teaching us something here. But notice another phrase I want to speak about. It says, with the scoffing of those who are at ease. Those who are at ease. People become complacent when their comforts are greater than their challenges or dangers. This is, may seem like a sort of backwards concept because we, we often spend so long in life where we see so many people that you want to get to the ultimate place of comfort the, the nicest place, the nicest holidays, mansions, and you know, blah, blah, blah. You all know this is, seems to be what is success in the world. But the, war, the Lord warns us here, it is often those who are at ease that forget and turn against the Lord most uh, quickly and drastically. And I believe this is something that we are witnessing in the Western world today. It almost seems to be that we are creating problems out of nothing just because we want to have problems at this time. And we are a culture that probably doesn't realise this is what we're doing. All problems are someone else's fault. All hardships are unfair. Everything is a personal attack. Everyone is a perpetual victim. We blame each other. Everyone is entitled to certain rights and privileges. And there is no taking of personal responsibility for anything. This is the sign of people who have been at ease for a long, long time. Really, we are a generation, I'm saying maybe let's say from the 60s to today that have been at ease for a long time. This is unheard of in every other generation. The fact that we get to choose what we want to eat is unheard of for most generations. The fact that we get hot water is unheard of for most generations. This has put us at a place of ease. And this is what happens, really, when you didn't earn the freedom that you have. You didn't fight the battles which people did to get you those freedoms. You simply assume that you deserve all those things and that is the normal way of being. 
The Lord warns us about this many, many times. This happened to Israel, and Israel was warned about this. Let me read to you Amos chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. It's a longer quote, but it's all, I couldn't cut it down, so just follow with me. This is exactly the warning. He says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Calneh and look, and go from there to Hamath the Great, then go to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity and would you bring near the seat of violence? Those who recline on beds of ivory, sprawl on their couches, eat lambs from the flock, calves from the midst of the stool, who improvise to the sound of a harp and like David has com have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from the sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they will now go into exile at the head of exiles and the sprawlers banqueting will pass away. Now I read these verses and I find this to be almost prophetic for our generation now. For me that describes where we are in Western culture right now. There are many resources I could give you that would prove this to us. We have been at ease for too long. We have been doing things like this. Our concerns are no longer about securing our rights and our privileges and our freedoms, we have taken them for granted and now they are being taken away from us. This is exactly what happened to Israel. Now with Israel, it was a foreign power that came in and took them away. But they did not repent. They did not mourn over the ruin of Joseph. We could say today, men have forgotten God and men are not mourning that God has been evacuated from culture. We may be surviving temporarily on the fruits of the Christian worldview that we see. All these things that we love, human rights, all of these things are only justifiable when you have implicit moral value to every single individual human. Those things are the fruit of the Christian worldview and nothing else. You will not find anything like that through the whole of human history and these ancient cultures in the Near East. It was power that wins. Slaves were people's products. That is how the ancient Near East was won. It was Jesus Christ that changed that. And now that we may see the fruits of that, we benefit from them, we are at ease God has been evicted, the scaffolding is coming down, and what comes next, we do not know. But let's pray that we do mourn over this and we do repent. The arrogance of the complacent, they lose your spiritual sensitivity, you lose your awareness, and thus the Lord says that nation is ripe for divine judgment. Now we can ask this on, we can speak nationally, but we can also ask in an individual sense, what is it that makes us complacent? Let's not pretend any of us are above this we all become complacent in our Christian lives at times, whether it's through busyness of life, whether it's through a sin that you cannot overcome, whether it's just through anger or bitterness or whatever it may be, fill in the blank, there's a million different reasons. Are we too comfortable? Do we just assume that we have these rights and they are just sort of there floating around and everyone is entitled to them? I speak about the freedom to worship. This is a right that is not really... But most people in the world today don't have that right. You can go to Saudi Arabia today, there's not a single church in Saudi Arabia. You put a cross around your neck in many countries and you'll be thrown into prison. Just recently, didn't we, we saw another entire village or entire school of African Christian children kidnapped. And they always target the Christian schools and they take them. This is the world for many people. We have been at ease for too long. Now, these rights... If you go through English history, just speak about our nation for a bit, people died for these rights. The right to freely congregate, the Toleration Act, May 24th, 1689, 
This was an act of parliament that granted freedom to worship for nonconformists. We would be classed as nonconformists here. Before that, you were not allowed to do it. It was that the Anglican Church could do it, but this is the whole battle of English history. Let's go back a bit further. June the 12th, uh, June 1215, the Magna Carta. This was where King John signed the Magna Carta, a very famous document in English history. The first clause in the Magna Carta says, the English church shall be free and shall have its rights undiminished and its liberties unimpaired. Its rights, what it basically meant is that the crown was not allowed, or the government was not allowed to interfere with the rights of the church because they had been doing that for too long in English history. And this was signed into law. Now let me ask, how are we doing with that? I say we've thrown that away this year, to be frank. We have seen a dramatic reversal in a thousand years of English history in the last year. And my point is, no one is weeping over the ruin of Joseph. It doesn't even seem like people have noticed quite how monumental these things have done, what precedents have been set and therefore can easily happen again now. These are the things that, that I believe Amos is warning the people about. Has the ease at which we operated our religious lives made us forget that the world is against us, not really us, the world is against him, our Lord, the one that we look up to, the king, the sovereign, because there is a real enemy in this world and it is trying to stop his message. Now, we know that he is a defeated foe in many ways, but until the Lord's kingdom fully comes on this earth, he is still here and he is still an enemy. This pilgrim that we read about in this psalm, he knew if he was to survive, he needed to plead for the mercy of God. And the psalm ends on that note. And let's just go straight into Psalm 124. Let's read the whole thing. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, which men rose up against us? Then, then they would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So the psalmist here presents another thing that this God that they look to does. He protects and he delivers them. Now the background to this particular psalm is probably referring to a story in 2 Samuel when David was anointed king, the Philistines attacked, David inquired of the Lord, and if you remember the story, he said, when you hear the whisper of the armies in the trees, then you are to attack and I'll give the Philistines into your hand. It is a, divinely, a divine deliverance of his people. Now, if I could just step back and let's look at this in a sort of typological way, you have this enemy described here, as sharp teeth, uh, a foe who is looking to attack, looking to swallow, looking to tear the Israelites up. It reminds me very much of the language that you find in the New Testament in the book of Peter, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, where he says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You see, the devil is the same picture, this prowling enemy. The Christian, like this pilgrim here, must acknowledge in those times that God is the source of his help in this situation, the only source of help. 1 Peter 5, 9, he goes on, he says, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever and ever. That is the only way out, you could say. That is the only refuge. That is the only place you want to be in this world. Because ultimately, there is a prowling lion around. And it is, like many of you will have seen, you know, we know this. You only have to watch the news for half an hour in the world. And again, our part of the world is very privileged. You look a little further afield, and you'll know it can be a very cruel world. As, of, as often said, it's a sinking ship. Now, one day the king will come, and he will fix that ship, renew it, restore it, and deal with it. But until then, we are here to do his bidding. Let's just go straight into Psalm 125. I know we haven't done much on that, but it's kind of a theme that builds up into Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and evermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, I love that word. It's a, the, the lyrics of a very famous messianic worship song. It's great. Now, it seems that the psalmist here has got the imagery. He's basically, if you can imagine him, he's come up to Jerusalem. Remember, we always go up to Jerusalem. He's looking up above Jerusalem to the Lord. He sees this uh, topography of Jerusalem, the mountains, and he makes a theological point. He's probably walking around the city gates, the walls, and he notices that Mount Zion, the center of everything, is protected and surrounded by these other mountains. You've got Mount Scopus, you've got Mount of Olives, and all these different mountains around Jerusalem. And then he makes this sort of meditation from the holy city, and he says, those who have trust in the Lord are in a similar situation that Mount Zion is in. They are surrounded, they are protected by they are immovable, and they are secure for all eternity. You don't move mountains. That's the point that he's making here. When you're surrounded by the Lord, when you're covered and protected by the Lord, it doesn't matter if the, if the you know, like we've said, there is a, can be quite a harsh world. You are the Lord's, and he cannot, he will not let you go. It says those who trust in the Lord. The word trust there would be the same concept that we would say faith for. That is ultimately the definition of faith. It means trusting. Uh, in someone who is worthy to be trusted. This is what we see. You see, you may struggle a lot in your life. You may have, like I said, areas of sin that you just keep failing in. You can't seem to overcome. You may go through deep periods of depression. You may struggle with relating to others. You may have past grievances in your life that are still affecting you today. You may have none of these things. But if you have placed your trust in the one who is mighty to save, you are secure and you are immovable. You are as Mount Zion. You are his for all eternity. Now, what do we trust in? I was asking myself this as I was studying this. What is it we actually trust in? Yes, we've been Christians for a long time. Yes, we say we trust in the Lord. But what does that actually mean on a day-to-day -day basis for us? How do you tell what it is you're trusting in? And the way I was really thinking about this is where do we actually go to when you're in trouble? Um, not necessarily talking about physical danger, but when you're in trouble in life, when you're in those low periods, when your soul is vexed, when you're hurting, when you're grieving, where is it you go to? And also on the other side, where is it you go to that you're thankful for something? Where do you go when you want to give thanks, when you want to praise, when you want to worship, when you want to commune with the fellowship of the saints? Where is it that you go? 
The world will give you many solutions. You see them just on fire right now across the world. All sorts of new age spiritualities, all sorts of meditative techniques, all sorts of secrets and all sorts of mysterious religions, mysterious knowledges. We have mindfulness, we have meditation, we have just on and on and on that these things could go. And we need to ask ourselves, the world has other things, where do we go? Do we go to the pub? Do we go to the bottle? Some people go to medication. Again, there's a place for certain things like that in this world. I'm not blanketly saying those things are wrong. But is your first reaction to your problems to go to something other than the Lord? That is the, the point I'm really making here. Often it's as easy as just relying on our own ingenuity and strength and wisdom, as we call it. Sometimes we want to solve our own problems like that. Is your faith constantly from a mountaintop to a valley? And you see this. And if you've been a believer for any period of time, you may have gone through a period of like this. You seem like you're doing really well, and then all of a sudden you seem like you're not doing at all. You seem like you're doing really well, and then you're not doing at all. I'm sure everyone knows what we're talking about there with that. It's not constant. It's not, uh, there's no sort of consistency to your life. And if you've ever experienced any of those things that I have just mentioned, and I'm, I'm not really letting anyone off the hook here, I'm blanketly saying we've all experienced something like that at some point, this is where we have to ask ourselves, where are we placing our trust? And if it is not in the Lord, Why? And the answer is probably that we do not know him well enough. That is probably it. You actually do not trust that he has all those situations in his hands. You are not looking up. You have not discovered that he is the one enthroned above the cherubim who holds all things in his hands and can take care of you from birth to the grave and beyond. If you don't know him like that, then you probably won't trust him. You'll have a low view of God. You'll be looking to the side, to a demigod, to one of these other gods that people talk about. That is not the Lord. He is the only one who can trust you. Let me read to you this passage from Jeremiah 17. It talks about trusting other things. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert. He will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitants. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and he will not fear when the heat comes but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Trust in the Lord. Not only will trust in the Lord be a picture of being surrounded by the Lord's, just like Mount Zion, by those mountains, by the protection of the Lord. Trusting in the Lord gives you deep roots. And notice how it describes this. So that when things get hot, and he's speaking, you know, he's giving an analogy here, when the world gets nasty, when the world presses in on you, when you're going through a drought, with the imagery is giving you here, and you've got nothing, there's no rain coming, you don't feel like there's anything coming, if you trust in the Lord, your resources are not from the external, your resources are going right down deep into the foundations of your faith, and you have a tap to the living water. That is what it is talking about here. You have resources through your faith and your trust. The Bible always describes those who don't really have that sort of trust in the Lord. Matthew 7, it says people are like sand, ever shifting, always unstable. Isaiah 57, James 1.6, some people are like the sea, they're restless, they're unsettled. Some people are like the wind, they're uncertain, they're inconsistent. That's Ephesians 4. This is the imagery of people who don't have that faith in the Lord. Now the answer is... We're not saying you want to look at, oh, you have such great faith, aren't you doing really well? That's literally not my point here. 
We just need a mustard seed of faith. The point is I'm, I'm encouraging everyone to understand more of the great God that we place our faith in. Because that is the whole reason that we study the word of God here, because we want to reveal him more. He has revealed himself in this world. He's given us his spirit that we are not left as orphans. And if we seek him, he says we will find him. If we obey him, he says he will disclose himself to us. Therefore, some people will have a deeper revelation of the Lord than others. That's just the way it is. We know that with human relationships too. The more time you spend with someone, the more you watch them, you observe them, you see what they like, what they don't like, you're going to be closer to them. And therefore, as A.W. Tozer often said, you are only as close to God as you really want to be. And that's the point. We need to ask ourselves again, is there anything holding us back? It may be a sin in your life that you can't get over. It may just be apathy or it may be like Amos was warning us. We are just a little bit too comfortable and at ease and we don't really see the need in our day-to-day life to go much deeper than this. We're happy going through the motions of Christianity. We do it on Sunday, we do it on midweek and we do a little bit of this and that's absolutely great. But when the drought comes, would you be able to stand? You only will if your roots go down deep like it says in this passage in Jeremiah, by that stream. Now, let's go back to Psalm 125. Back to this mountain imagery. The mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and evermore. Now, the imagery of a kingly mountain, now for me, that cannot be moved, reminds me of the book of Daniel. There's an amazing prophecy in the book of Daniel that predicts the succession of world empires, It's absolutely amazing. It's one of those passages that people don't know how to deal with. They either ignore it, try and explain it away, but it is one of those passages that really proves to you that God is the God of history, that God is sovereign, God is in charge, and he's told you things that will happen before they come to pass so that you may know that he is God. He is the one we look up to. That's the point here. But you remember Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, the king of Babylon, and he sees this statue And then he sees this massive stone that comes and just smashes the statue. And it it says it with these words. The stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. A great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in this interpretation, Daniel, in in verse 44 of chapter 2, he says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now, you go through the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, every single one of those kingdoms that he's talking about there, all those other kingdoms, except the last final one, they have all come and they have all gone. That is a matter of history, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer. The question is, this coming kingdom, this is our future. This is the destiny that God has brought for us. We are there Because of him. That is our future. Now again, the imagery of mountains. Mount Zion, surrounded by these other mountains. The psalmist is saying that these are protection and security. It reminds me also, not only of the book of Daniel and his kingdom, it reminds me also of Jesus' words in John chapter 10. He says, My sheep hear my voice and know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. So just as the mountains surround Mount Zion... Lord's hands surround us. And then he says, not only the Lord's hands, but also the Father's hands, metaphorically speaking. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hands. So the care, the comfort, and the protection of the believer is absolute. And then verse 3, 
For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. Now the scepter of wickedness, a scepter is a common kingly item. You find it various places in the world, in the Bible. It's usually talking about a ruling power, the right to rule. In the Old Testament, God's protection uh, for Israel was the only thing that really took it away was when they rebelled against the Lord, they rejected his word, and they went into deep sin. And then he allowed these other nations to come in and rule over them. But yes, this was never permanent. And it seems to imply that the word here, is, it's a hard translation, this verse, but so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to wrong, seems to imply that when the Israelites are being ruled over by a nation from outside, or in our terminology, let's say a secular nation that does not have the God of Israel as its center, as its focus, and the word of God as its mandate, then the people are encouraged more to sin. They will put forth their hand to iniquity, it says. And I I found this really challenging to us because... You know, we see laws going against us quite frequently. We can look around and we can see things that do vex our soul. And we all know the pull and the urge to just get just one little compromise here and you start to slip away or you become, you normalize it. It becomes nothing to you. This is the danger, I believe, of living in these cultures. And this is even more, I believe, why three times a year, the Lord pulled every single one of his people from all of the culture around them and said, three times a year, you must, by law, come up to the house of Zion. Because by doing that, you separate yourself, you get perspective, you're looking to to the dwelling place of God, you come to his temple, you come to his courts, you come to the place of sacrifice, and you get cleansed and forgiven, and then you go back into the world as kings and priests again. And you see that principle. I just love the the way uh, the calendar of Israel just reminds us so clearly of our role before God. Now, we can also ask ourselves, do we have any sins in our lives that dominate us? Are there any areas that we keep failing? Maybe we haven't fully given those areas over to God, or maybe we have and God is still taking us through that process now. Just talk to the Lord about it. That's what I'm saying. We all have those things. The Lord is there. The Lord is here. We are told to come boldly to the throne room of God, and we can do that. If we surround ourselves with things that make no effort to come to Mount Zion, sooner or later we probably won't come to Mount Zion ourselves. That's ultimately what the culture is saying here. And that is a lesson that I unfortunately have seen many, many times, I'm sure many of you have, with believers. When you take yourself out of the pilgrim caravan going up to Mount Zion, you place yourself in that surrounding culture, sooner or later you will probably join that culture and the journey to Zion will not be one of your priorities. And that is when, unlike the psalmist, you have ceased to look up to the one who is above all and you are looking around you. And when you do that, it says your hand will probably end up being brought forth in iniquity. This is why it says fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Establish yourself in grace. All right, let's finish up this psalm. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Do good, O Lord. Now, that's really to those who are walking in righteousness from their heart. And this is, again, not just an act. This is not an external act. This is not slipping into the legalism that many of the the Jewish people did at this time, going through the ceremonies. 
We could make an analogy. It's not the same as a passionless Christianity, a Christianity going through the motions. It's not being baptized, being confirmed, taking communion, and all of these things. It's about, as we saw in Philippians, circumcision of the heart. Or as he said in this psalm, trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord will be like Mount Zion. That's what it's talking about here. Ultimately, it's saying here, you do good, O Lord, to those who are good. This is the Old Testament principle that if you have obedience, you'll be blessed. Ultimately, as we move further into the New Testament revelation, we see just the amazing grace of God because we know that God does good to those who are not good. It's what it says in Romans 5. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone will dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The goodness of God. And then he says, but for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. So what I really see in these last couple of verses here is a contrast between the destiny of the righteous and the destiny of the unrighteous. One will be led away into iniquity. One will be led into that eternal kingdom that never ends. It reminds me very much of Matthew chapter 25. And I, I'm not, I know I'm making these sort of spiritual analogies because Jesus just... I believe, uses and draws on the Old Testament so much. But you remember in Matthew 25, when it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. Nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate one from another as a sheep separates from the goat. He'll put the sheep on one side, the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then those on his left, depart from me, you accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Reminds me of the psalmist here. Those who wanted to do iniquity will be led forth into iniquity. They will get the end result of where they wanted to go. This is the actual seriousness of the message that we teach. And I believe, again, the complacency that we often have in the West for an easy life has made us forget these things. And sometimes it's challenge that makes us remind ourselves of these things. In light of the pilgrim being one who trusts in the Lord, and as Mount Zion shall not be moved, it ends by saying, we can have peace. Peace be upon you. Peace be upon Israel. And the word there for peace, remember, is shalom. This is talking about wholeness, a right relationship with God. This is ultimately the believer. We have that peace in all circumstances because of our trust in the Lord. One commentator ends it like this. He says, peace shall be his in life and at death. The Christian knows in whom he has believed. No unknown redeemer stands beside his bed. No unknown hands are thrown around him and there shall be peace in heaven. No jarring discords are there, but the delightful anthems of gratitude which burst almost unconsciously from the hearts of the redeemed. How pleasant the murmurs of the crystal river of life which glides so gently between its green banks. How softly the wind breathes as it stirs the branches of the tree of life. How sublime the repose of that magnificent city of our God. And that is, I believe, the heart of this pilgrim as he continues his journey up to the house of the Lord. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.